Welcome back and welcome to Palestine Deep Dive, where we examine the big issues uh, in the Middle East with a particular focus on Palestine. We take a look at the wider global situation and we welcome guests with a particular uh, speciality, a particular knowledge, a particular expertise and opinion. Um, people you want to hear from more, we don't get to hear enough from. Uh, and uh, we, it's very great, it's very good that uh, we're also joined by all of you from wherever you are from right across the world. So as we get underway, please do get ready to send in your questions. And we're going to take as many of them as we can. Uh, and also let us know um, where you're sending them in from. And I think, you know, clearly over the past few weeks, um, unsurprisingly, because of what has been happening on the ground in Israel and Palestine, uh, the whole question of Palestine has become uh, a, a much talked about, much debated, uh, much investigated uh, uh, issue. There is no question that Palestine has been uh, at the forefront of global news. And of course, in recent weeks, we've seen finally, after 12 years, Benjamin Netanyahu leaving office. Uh, and of course, a big question mark about uh, who has replaced him, whether that means that there's going to be any real difference or more of the same. Um, uh, but as recent events have demonstrated, quite clearly Palestine uh, is not only a big international story, but Palestinians aren't going to go away. None of the issues have been resolved, but what has happened is that they've been thrown into much starker relief. Um, and so today I'm talking to two prominent writers and intellectuals, and actually really about their vision for a future for Palestine. Uh, unsurprisingly, because of the events as they've, as they've occurred uh, in Palestine, as we've witnessed them, as, as people have experienced them more importantly, um, unsurprisingly, people have been tending to react uh, and therefore people have not really had a chance to gather themselves together to begin to look ahead uh, at what uh, can change, what needs to change, how it can change, a future vision for Palestine. So um, I'm Mark Seddon. Um, I used to be the Al Jazeera UN correspondent in New York. I subsequently went on to work for uh, the United Nations for the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon when he was in office and then more recently for a president of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. I've taken a long time interest in the question of Palestine uh, and uh, I'm delighted today to be joined once again actually uh, by Professor Elen Pape. It'd be familiar to all of you. He's a distinguished Israeli historian and socialist activist. He's a professor at the College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter, director of the university's European Center for Palestine Studies, and co-director of the Exeter Center for Ethno-Political Studies. He actually joined us not from Exeter today, but from Haifa. Um, Dr. Ramsey Baroud uh, uh, is in Seattle. Um, goodness knows, we're all over the world, I can't believe it. Uh, but Dr. Ramsey is in Seattle and he is a Palestinian-American journalist and the editor of the Palestine Chronicle. And he's the author of five books. Uh, his latest, uh, we discussed the book actually last time, uh, These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons is, has been published by Clarity Press and you can buy a copy if you haven't already from there. And of course, Ilan and Ramsey are currently working together on their new publication, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. And they'll be talking about the book later on, also about uh, other contributors, um, how it's been put together and when we can expect it. Well, I think we can expect it to be published in November, can't we? That's the, that's the, that's the November is the publication date. Um, and so we'll also be hearing whether this recent newfound unity across Palestine uh, that arose really out of protest against the, the ethnic cleansing that's effectively been going on in the Sheikh Jarrah district of East Jerusalem, uh, and of course the bombardments in Gaza and what have you, has, it has been called, um, the response has been called the unity intifada, bringing people together, which clearly has happened, we can see it. 
Um, in Israel, in the occupied territories, uh, Palestinians have been coming together in a way that hasn't been seen uh, really for quite some time. So look, thank you very much to both of you. Uh, Billy Hanier to panelists says, warm greetings to panelists and to speakers from New Zealand. Well, thank you, Billy. Um, and Bilal says, uh, hello. I don't know where Bilal is, but thank you very much, Bilal. And we'll no doubt be hearing from you and others later on. But I wondered if we could just begin. Um, and I wonder if I could begin with you, Ilan, if I may. If you look back over these past traumatic months, um, is it the case? Do you think that something fundamental has changed both inside uh, Israel-Palestine um, and outside in the wider world? Are we in a different place than we were? Hi, Mark. Thank you for, for having me on this show. And it's a great pleasure to do it again uh, with my dear, dear friend, uh, Ramzi. And thank you, everyone, who uh, took part in organizing it and participating in it. Um, I was very fortunate uh, uh, to be on the ground uh, in Palestine when uh, these uh, uh, events, almost, I would say, dramatic 11 days uh, 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 took place. Uh, and uh, it's uh, a very privileged position to be in because you can see for yourself what goes on without the uh, receiving the news through filters of interpretation, misinformation, and distortions. And, and uh, I, I think I even felt in, in a stronger way the uniqueness of what I've, I've witnessed and what, of course, I was aware of happening in places where I couldn't be uh, physically uh, there myself. In this respect, yes, I think something, something has happened. I wouldn't say it never happened before. Palestinian history is full of uh, junctures in which people unite together, show steadfastness, resistance, resilience, uh, and do not cave in uh, into uh, a settler colonial project that wishes to dispossess them. So in this respect, we have been there before. I think we feel the novelty uh, of what happened uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is that it came after years uh, where it seemed that the uh, official political system, one can call it this way, or the official Palestinian polity was fragmented, divided uh, by dissents, discussions, disputes, uh, and there was a sense of lack of unity. And definitely, uh, as you mentioned yourself, uh, the events were termed as the intifada of unity because all these, all these factionalism, and, and uh, uh, ideological or tactical uh, uh, dissents were all put aside for the sake of showing a unity in the face of an attempt to displace Palestinians from East Jerusalem, to violate the sacredness of Haram al-Sharif, and to once again, to uh, try and bring uh, Gaza on its knees to succumb to, to Israeli policies. Uh, and against that, uh, the unity was quite extraordinary. Uh, the resilience was, was uh, brilliant. And, and I saw with my own eyes, uh, especially the young people, uh, not only uh, showing immense courage in facing one of the most brutal occupying armies in the world today, uh, and not being afraid and not being intimidated, but also articulating during and after their confrontation with a very clear language, uh, with a clarity of vision for the future, which was also missing, I think, uh, in the last, uh, since probably since 1982, since the, the demise of the PLO in Beirut in, in 1982. The second reason that there is a, a sense of change, and again, we've been there before, but I think this time uh, the international reaction was even more powerful than I think we anticipated. Uh, of course, uh, there was a, a, a great show of solidarity when the Israelis last assaulted Gaza in 2014. Uh, I wouldn't say that the civil society in the world was silent and was not trying to impact uh, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, the policies of uh, the governments and the political elites. But this time, I think that the, the support was even greater and it even, uh, 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 the, the support from below 
reached the upper echelons of politics for the first time. And, and you could see that it's beginning to be a meaningful factor in the way politics is being played at uh, from above. Mm. And, and I will finish by saying, and this time it did not only focus on the United States and Europe. The global South was awakened by these amazing 11 days. And this is something new. I mean, the last time the global South was in solidarity with the Palestinians was the 1960s and the 1970s, when it was experiencing itself an anti-colonialist struggle. I was surprised that in the 21st century, so many people in the global South understood that they are witnessing a very important chapter in the anti-colonial struggle of Palestinians on the ground. So these Ilan, were all novel. Yes, I mean, you, you, what you were saying then about the global South and particularly G77 countries, countries like South Africa, uh, the, the Prime Minister Cyril Ramaphosa spoke out very powerfully uh, drawing parallels is, is a very interesting development. Um, but I'm just thinking, if you look back to this time last year, um, President Trump was in the White House. Uh, there was talk of uh, essentially the appropriation of more Palestinian land um, in the West Bank permanently. There were uh, diplomatic agreements being signed with various Gulf sheikdoms uh, and also with countries like Morocco and South Sudan and what have you. Uh, and there was, it appeared that there was a feeling of helplessness, um, appear, uh, uh, especially amongst Palestinians, that really what more could be done to them? Um, so all of that has changed within a year. Do you think that essentially people have just been pushed too far uh, and that essentially there was almost this cork was just waiting to shoot out of the bottle? Well, I, you know, uh, it, it, the juries are still out to see if it really matters that Netanyahu was removed or that Biden replaced uh, uh, Trump. I'm not entirely sanguine about these political changes uh, uh, and about their ability to play a transformative role in our lives uh, in historical Palestine. I'm, I'm quite doubtful about it, actually. I, I don't think it has a lot to do with Netanyahu and, and, and Trump in this respect. I think it is something that was boiling and those of us who were in contact with the younger uh, uh, generation, and, and we have to remember, maybe we should say it in brackets, that the Palestinian society is one of the youngest in the world. Those of us who were in touch with the younger uh, generation, whether these were activists among the 48 Arabs, that is the Palestinians in Israel, or in the occupied West Bank, the besieged Gaza Strip, the refugee community or the exilic community, we were aware that there is something boiling there, that there is a, a, a clear uh, uh, orientation that wasn't there before and a wish not to be affected by the factionalism of the politicians that uh, uh, either are seated in Ramallah or in Gaza or in, in, in historical Palestine itself, a wish to be assertive themselves and determine themselves. Uh, the mode of action, uh, the vision, and the way, uh, the way forward. Uh, you, you know, I'm an historian, and, and I, I always say that the trigger of any event, whether it was the first intifada, the second intifada, or this intifada, the trigger, eventually, you see it as an historian, is not very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important to record it, mm -hmm. but it's not something that explains to you why, why it happened. It was not the ethnic cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah, which is the trigger. It is the ethnic cleansing that began in 1926 that is the trigger. The fact that this ethnic cleansing for more than 100 years has been ignored by the West, condoned by the West, mm -hmm. legitimized by the West. And therefore, uh, these kind of undercurrents would burst out again and again, again and again. Yeah. And one day they will be more successful than the day before. Uh, this is an ongoing, um, there is an ongoing catastrophe in Nakba, that is true, but there's also an ongoing resistance. And in fact, what Ramzi and I were trying to say is you need a, a new genealogy for this, for this uh, story. The genealogy is not just of victimhood, but also of agency. I'm, I'm going to stop you there, Ilan, because I've yeah. got to come to Ramzi. But just before I do, I just wanted to say we've had... Um, 
uh, with Peter Fippen says hi from uh, Mid Coast, Maine, USA. Uh, so, hi, says Thea Valentina Gardelin from Italy. Hi, says uh, Dr. Ahmed Abdul Hadi from the Gulf. Um, uh, we have also people from, uh, yeah, somebody from Seattle, Guy Oron from Seattle. Uh, Caroline Diel, she's from London. Uh, Ingrida Tatalit, I beg your pardon, Ingrida, if I got your name wrong. Uh, she says hi from Vilnius. Um, all very pleased to be joining us tonight. We've got some questions coming in from them. But Ramsey, I wanted to come to you if I may, because I mean, also what appears to have changed um, in the past few months uh, is the way in which the language is being, uh, the, the language has been changed. I mean, the, the, new, um, new forms of describing what is happening and what, what Il Ilan was saying has been happening since 1926, but it's been a very long time since we've heard of ethnic cleansing in relation to Palestine. But we're hearing also the comparisons with apartheid South Africa and much more. So it, it looked as though, um, you know, the global landscape last year was kind of fixed. But what seems to have happened is that, uh, that Israel is now being subject to a degree, a critique that it hasn't really had to deal with before. And interestingly also, I mean, I don't know, would you agree that the, the, heart, the, the battle over hearts and minds is being lost and the Israeli um, media machine um, has come out of this recent episode uh, battered and weak. What's your, what's your take on all of that? And I know we're going to be talking about your book and your vision, but it's just kind of setting the, setting the landscape for this, the, the, the change landscape for, 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 for your vision, really. Um, absolutely. Uh, first, thank you um, again for uh, hosting me and, and uh, my uh, good friend and mentor, Ilan, to talk about this critical subject. Uh, and for the excellent work that you um, and your team have been doing uh, on this fantastic show. Um, you know, the issue of language is absolutely critical to all of this. Uh, in fact, I think uh, it, it really is all about the framing. The framing comes before anything else, before the, the bombs start falling on Gaza and before the Palestinians in the West Bank and, and, um, uh, and, and, and East Jerusalem, you know, uh, are subjected to this kind of continuous and, and, and uh, relentless state of apartheid and military occupation and violence the language is there and it has been there for a long, long time. I mean, we all know about the, you know, the, the, the depiction of historic Palestine as a land of no people for a people of no land. And we speak about it, you know, kind of at this point nonchalantly is just part of the, 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 the beginning of the Zionist movement and, and how they managed to frame their colonialism in a way that, that made it far less sinister and threatening, say, compared to other colonial movements at the time. And we also recall uh, um, Golda Meir's famous statement in 1967, for example, that, uh, that the Palestinians never existed, that they were never there. There, there is no such a people calling themselves Palestinians and they have been, uh, and that we have removed them. They simply never existed. All of this is just part of the framing and for the framing to happen in such a way there has to be a very dedicated, clear language that, that the Zionists had to come up with in order for them to paint the Palestinians in such a way and to paint themselves in a different way. I would say that the, 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 the Israeli victory of, over language, the triumph and manipulation of language has, has really kind of received a massive boost during the so-called peace process the Madrid talks and the Oslo uh, accords in 1990 uh, all the way until 93, 94, 95 with the Paris Protocol, where Israel not only managed to uh, impose a particular language on the Palestinians and on the international community, the peace process, the painful compromises, the land for peace formula and all of that, it also managed to create two types of Palestinian narratives the good Palestinians, the moderate Palestinians, and those are the partners of peace, uh, you know, presented in today's Mahmoud Abbas and others, and the bad Palestinians, the boogeyman Palestinians, the terrorists, the radical, the terrorist sympathizer, and so forth. And, and these are the, you know, the, the people that are the enemies of peace. These are the radicals. These are the people who need to be 
pushed away. Now, the, the sad reality is that we unfortunately engaged with this particular narrative, the post-peace process narrative. And we started, like some of us either enjoyed, you know, the perks of being the moderate. They made a lot of good money. They built villas and they have VIP cards and they are traveling the world and they are living a good life. And there are the others, you know, the, the either the terrorists or the radicals or the terrorist sympathizers. And, and, and they spent so many years trying to prove the opposite of that brand that has been imposed on them as a result of that peace process. So we kind of in, got engaged in this, in this kind of pointless intellectual exercise in trying to prove that we are not the bad people they say we are. And in the process of doing so, and that's where the book comes into this, in the process of doing so, we failed uh, uh, in articulating what our movement is all about, who are the Palestinian people? What is their struggles all about? The fact, like for example, we no longer use such terms as liberation, decolonization, uh, 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 you know, uh, national struggle, national constants. Um, all of these terminologies are just terminologies that are too confrontational. I've been told actually in, in, in previous conferences that my language is too confrontational and it's not helpful. But that language that I'm that we are using and we intend in using in this book, it is actually the language of every um, uh, uh, liberation movement, uh, every anti-apartheid, anti-colonial movement in the entirety of the southern hemisphere. This was the language to be used, and it's the language that once more we need to utilize in order for us to actually be able to articulate the proper narrative and relegate really that harmful language that depicted us of being radicals and terrorist sympathizers and so well, forth and so on. Ramsey, if I may, I mean, is it because we are hearing this kind of language again, ethnic cleansing, uh, settler colonialism, apartheid, uh, and we're hearing it from organizations like Human Rights Watch. We're hearing it from um, Israeli human rights organizations too, the way they've talked about the occupation, uh, the way that Gaza is described and accepted by most people really for being effectively the biggest open air prison in the world. Is it because that language is now much more um, out there, if you like, and used uh, in international media uh, and in discussions such as this, that actually it, that is also striking a bell and a, and a chord right across the, the global south? And that goes back to what Ilan was saying. Is this why there's been a kind of resurgence of international solidarity? Absolutely. I mean, this is the true triumph. And I've, I've written since the, the Gaza war about why the Palestinians have won. And this is not a sentimental notion, you know, just, you know, kind of uh, um, just paying our respect to the Palestinian resistance. And, and, and we have to. I mean, this is absolutely critical that we must pay our respect to Palestinian resistance. But but victory and defeat and triumphs and such, at times it's actually psychological more than anything else. I'll give you an example. There is a project that has been going on for years now in Washington DC, led by um, a character by the name of Daniel Pipes. We know him very well because of his anti-Palestinian Islamophobic remarks and, and, and such. And he started this project called the Israel Victory Project. And the idea behind the project is very simple. Let's get the Congress to pass a bill that says Israel has won. Israel is now victorious. And victory, that declaration is absolutely essential for peace to follow. So Israel has won, the Palestinians have lost, and we will not engage with Palestinians until they acknowledge their defeat. I mean, I, I know it sounds uh, it's, it's so bizarre, but actually it is a non-for-profit organization. There are many Republican senators and congressmen who are actually backing it up. And they've been pushing for this Israel Victory Project in Congress for years because they kind of reached that conclusion. What are we still fighting for? We have won, and it's time to impose that victory on the Palestinians. And that's what the normalization with Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Sudan is part of this thinking that let's impose that vision. Now, as Palestinians, we say not only Israel hasn't won and we haven't been defeated. To the contrary, we are the ones who are striking all of these true alliances, all of these 
intersectional uh, uh, alliances all across the world. We are the ones who are building a true and sustainable grassroots movement uh, linking up with hundreds of movements and civil society organizations all across the world. It is our language that's winning and it's their language that's losing. And I think this whole victory project is really kind of a reflection of that sense of despair, that 70 plus years of military occupation, ethnic cleansing, apartheid and such, and Palestine is still there. And our people are well, still fighting and our language is still very much omnipresent in this discourse. Ra Ramsey, I'm, I'm sure the descendants of uh, Cecil Rhodes who called that country Rhodesia thought that was a settlement and the Rhodesia had won. But of course, there is a there is this slight issue about reality and you can't just write something down and, and make it happen uh, as, as we know. Um, so look, we're, we're getting people sending in their, their, their messages of support from all over the world, actually. It's quite extraordinary, but we've all, I just wanted to go to you if I can, Ilan. And this is a, with a question. This is from, um, from Dave Chappell. Uh -huh. And Dave says, uh, surely what the recent uprising shows is that Palestinians will not give up the struggle and that in response, Zionist Israel cannot achieve its attempted erasure. Through the through the genocidal aspiration, though I can't quite put it, though the genocidal aspirations are more and more to the fore, with the and this he's referring to this death to Arabs march uh, uh, in Jerusalem, um, these calls to totally wipe out Gaza. Uh, these are all things that even Israel's allies cannot condone. So he asked the question: Is is Zionism therefore ultimately doomed? Uh, is that what do you make of that, Ilan? Thank you, thank you uh, for, for the question. Um, I, I think we have to be uh, careful. We, we are dealing with lives of millions of Palestinians who are still under Israeli occupation, uh, oppression, uh, apartheid, and, and siege. Uh, and uh, uh, Zionism is totally doomed. Men have nothing to fear in the near future, <clears throat> but they do. And, and, and one of the reasons they do is because of all the failures that Ramsey has enumerated. Uh, we remember that the last years of the apartheid regime in South Africa were the most brutal years of oppression. Uh, towards the end of this particular regime, uh, uh, all the uh, um, gloves had been removed and uh, a particularly nasty, barbarous and callous uh, a policy of oppression was executed by the South Africans. So we have to uh, 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 kind of distinguish between an analysis that shows what Ramsey has beautifully pointed to, the moral success of the Palestinian struggle uh, on the one hand, and the fact that, of course, the power still lies with the Israeli army, the Israeli security forces, or all these oppressive institutions and mechanisms that Israel has to impose its matrix of power over the Palestinians uh, wherever uh, they are. And I think this is an important analysis uh, that distinguishes between the long process we are witnessing and the more shorter uh, uh, kind of uh, or the or the nearest future awaiting us around the corner. Co around the corner, in the long run, definitely, uh, even if you have a high-tech nation state, uh, a settler state, which is a high-tech nation, if you want, and uh, with the strongest army in the region. Uh, with all these strategic alliances with uh, China, India, uh, and the international cooperation, and of course, above all, its unique position within the American uh, policy. Even if you have all this uh, uh, power behind you, it is still a conundrum. Why do you still have to lobby for your justification? Why does such a powerful uh, actor has a special ministry that its sole exclusive role is to justify the existence of it, of the state? This conundrum it shows you, exposes you, the, the historical and contemporary reality on the ground. This is an unjust project. And even the people who are now on the, on the winning side, if you want, in terms of of the balance of power, know that there is an, an inherent injustice within the project that casts a shadow of all these achievements, whether these are technological achievements, military achievements, or even welfare and economic uh, uh, achievements. 
So in this, if this is the way one understands uh, uh, the notion that Zionism is, is dead or Zionism is doomed, then I would agree. I, I, I think that Zionism could not really exist only on the basis of material achievements. It mm -hmm. needs a moral uh, infrastructure to uphold it. And it has lost the battle of buying such an infrastructure on constructing such an infrastructure. Every time it thinks that it has built something solid around its material achievement, it disseminates, it, it, it just uh, evaporates, it, it uh, disappears. And, and uh, I think this gives a lot of power to the Palestinians because we have to remember on the ground, not one inch of Palestine was yet liberated. The Israelis are still controlling the life of most Palestinians, uh, but we are in this uh, interesting, intriguing and dangerous historical juncture where international public opinion, Palestinian, uh, a new Palestinian unity, uh, even realization of some of the anti-Zionist forces within Israel are indeed talking the same language as Ramzi was, was pointing to mm -hmm. and are connecting to this history of Palestinian agency and resistance. There are still, there is still a counter alliance that believes it can complete the 1948 ethnic cleansing that it has not completed in that year. Well, Ilan, that is, that's exactly the point I was going to try to move towards, actually, because if there is a kind of vision of, of uh, Israel, and if there was a vision around Netanyahu and his supporters, it was just that, to continue from 1948, to, to make Israel effectively into a theocratic uh, state uh, and to drive Palestinians out of historic Palestine altogether. But, but what you and Ramsey are doing is, is putting together um, an alternative vision. Um, and I think, I mean, I know this is what, if you could both, and I'll start with you, Alan, and then go to you, Ramsey, if I may. I'm interested to know more about your book and who's contributed to it. What is the starting point for it? Um, and, and what, you know, looking forward in an optimistic way, um, what is this vision that you are hoping and planning to set out? So starting with you, uh, Ilan, and then to you, Ramsey, yeah. if I may, on that. Definitely. Um, I, I, we have kind of two perspectives here. One looks towards the past and one looks towards the, uh, a view towards the future. Towards the past, and I think we already alluded to it, both of us, in our answers to your questions, uh, we build this genealogy, this, this history of Palestinian resistance, but we're trying to uh, elaborate on this question of the resistance to show that it was in more than one aspect of life, or more than just the superficial image of Palestinian, you know, resisting through the gun or through the diplomatic uh, struggle, which is a kind of two aspects of Palestinian resistance that even sympathetic voices uh, on Palestine would kind of highlight as the major Palestinian efforts of liberation. We, we show that it goes through uh, poetry, science, businesses, art, folklore, that it's an encompassing uh, human organism that doesn't rest for a moment and is motivated by a human impulse of uh, a search for normality, for natural existence, for normal existence, and thus is not uh, driven by hatred, animosity, bigotism, terrorism, all these images that Ramsey was talking about. We, we want to show, going back to the past, the impulses and the manifestation of this kind of resistance and how they contributed to the steadfastness and the presence of the Palestinians inside and outside of Palestine. And towards the future, because these are the impulses, they are humane, they are universal, uh, they can be easily identified by people with a modicum of decency in them. We, we, we claim that this struggle was for the building of that future, built on these uh, principles of democracy, equality, humanity, uh, rectification of past evil so that we can move forward. And, and uh, we believe that uh, uh, this is, that we connect through this kind of a vision to the vision that were articulated by young people in those 
fantastic days in, in May uh, uh, this year. And also, I think, to the drive of the Palestinian national movement from the very beginning, it encountered this project of displacement and replacement that Europe had imposed on it because of its anti-Semitism. Mm. Uh, so so we, 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 we are viewing the future in, in this uh, liberated Palestine where there is a place for everyone, but it is a place where also past evil are being rectified and a future which can radi radiate and influence the Arab world as a whole uh, would be built step by step uh, by the younger generations uh, of Palestinians uh, inside and outside uh, their homeland. Well, thank you, Ilan. That's fascinating. And, and, and Ramsey, I suppose the question following on from what Ilan was saying was, well, how do you get there? Um, and because in order to do so, um, you somehow have to bring a majority of people uh, with you. Uh, and this means, I mean, there, are some, there will always be irreconcilables, uh, as, there have been, as there were in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Angola and many of the other countries that we've been talking about too, which is where there's been settler colonialism. In the case of Palestine, how, how can you get there? And is the ultimate aim, and do you set this out in your book, um, essentially uh, a democratic, secular, one-state Palestine where, there's, where Jews, Muslims, Christians can all work together and, 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 and be good neighbors? Is that the ultimate aim? But how do you get there? Right. Um, so I, the way that Ilan described it, I mean, uh, unsurprisingly, it's very, very beautiful. And it's... Uh, is giving me ideas and 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 uh, getting me excited about uh, the book that we're working on together. But um, yeah, that's a really good question, and I'll, I'll tell you in in kind of a little bit of a background about about this idea. I mean, we've been talking about decolonization within the academic context and liberation within the popular context, and and in 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 some ways both are really kind of. Uh, different diagnoses or different uh, terminologies describing the same phenomenon. Um, throughout the years, um, those of us who have been traveling and speaking and engaging with many audiences around the world, uh, we've always been kind of confronted with, you know, kind of honestly, seemingly silly and sometimes even uh, offensive notion of where is your blank? Where, where is your Mandela? Where is your... Uh, uh, Martin Luther King, where's your Gandhi? Um, it's, it's this kind of confrontational attitude that we are a nation that is capable of producing great men and women. Uh, and, and sadly, again, we um, engaged uh, the same way that I was talking, uh, you know, in, in similar ways, engaged in trying to prove that we do have great people and great men and women uh, but again, without really having the initiative to articulate the narrative of these great men and women on our own, it's always in response to something else. Well, Marwan Barghouti is our Nelson Mandela. Well, hopefully this addresses this particular issue, and then we move on. Um, in actuality, the Palestinian people, although we have uh, such a, a weak and, and uh, compromising morally and politically and every other way leadership, um, is, is, is uh, you know, the Palestinian people are in fact um, capable and have in, indeed produced some of the greatest intellectuals, not just in the typical fields of social science, history, politics, uh, and, 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 and such, but also in, in, in the fields of, uh, you know, theology and uh, feminism, education, media, human rights, science, music, and so forth. So, so this is really the background, is the need for us to once more reclaim our narrative as Palestinians and situate it within uh, the boundaries and within the priorities that we find to be essential and critical, not as a response to someone else's complaints, but because indeed this is what we need. Now, another reason is that we also have a leadership that does not speak on our behalf does not represent us, it's not democratically elected, and it's happy and it's comfortable being in that position. No accountability, no responsibility. The money is coming in every day and being spent to the cronies and, 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 and so forth. While the Palestinian people, the true leadership of our people, those in prison, 
the likes of Marwan Barghouti, Khaled Ajarrar, Ahmed Saadat, and all these people. Nobody is talking to them. Nobody is paying any attention to them, despite the fact that they are absolutely critical to our popular narrative. So the idea then was, what if we move past this old language? We're not debating one states, two states, this is a done deal. We are not debating whether we have the right to resist or not. That's not open for discussion or conversation. We are not talking about, do we have the right to liberate ourselves or do we have the, none of this is relevant. We are moving forward with a vision that accepts that resistance and liberation are absolutely essential and non-negotiable. Where do we go from here? And that is really, it was a massive challenge for us, Mark, in the sense that do we bring people who already agree? Do we bring people on board that we see eye to eye on many issues? But then what is the point of doing so? We end up creating what uh, Antonio Gramsci referred to as intellectualism and clickism. And we don't want to do that either. So we consider this book um, an attempt at going back to the drawing board, bringing some of the greatest brains and, 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 and we call in engaged intellectuals, again, another Gramscian term, people who back their words and their arts and their content and production with real action and involvement at a grassroots level in the ground. Bring them together, not just in Palestine and not just in the Middle East, but all around the world, from Hawaii to Chile, to Moscow, to London, to South Africa. And we ask each one of them to elaborate on a specific subject with this in mind your personal story as an engaged intellectual, how it fact factors in within the collective narrative of the Palestinian people, and what is your vision for that particular story? For example, Dr. Ghada Karmi is talking about modern history, Samah Abu Sharar about the right of return, Hanad al-Halawani about popular resistance in Al-Quds, Ibrahim Oudi about language and liberation, Father Manuel Musallam, Christian liberation theology, Samuel Aryan Islamic liberation theology, and so forth and so on. And the list kept growing and growing. And it was really such a challenge to keep it together. And for us also, it was such a refreshing experience having to deal with this massive number of Palestinian intellectuals who have excelled in their fields all over the world, bringing them together, the likes of Farah Nabulsi, for example, talking about cinema and film, Leila Haddad talking about food and culture and so forth and so on, bringing them all together to produce one treatise, one Palestinian document that presents this shared vision for, for liberation with no conditions, no apologies, and for resistance, but using their personal experiences as the platform and the medium to communicate these ideas. This sounds like an immensely powerful uh, project. And actually, I, I, I wish we could go through all of the comments we're receiving, because I suspect when you talk about um, many of those who have contributed and many of the academics and others who have contributed or are contributing to your book, you could probably be joined by a good number of people who are sending messages in today from around the world. Um, before I go on, I'm just going to take, I can't take them all, but there is a there is a particular message here. I'm not going to include um, Issam's question because we've actually just probably covered it. But um, uh, uh, this is a message from Issam Kasim. He says, my name is Issam Kasim from Altantura. First, I'd like to express gratitude to Ilan Pape, what he's done for me and my family. I'd like to thank him on behalf of my grandmother who passed away three years ago. She spent her life retelling the story of the massacre he helped bring to light, Ilan, that is, the story she told me and my family of that night when she lost all of her brothers and a few of her cousins. Um, so we are getting questions uh, and, and lots of, and we will try and take, we will try and take as many as we can. Um, but I, I, I wondered, uh, and, and this one is uh, going back to you, uh, Ilan, with uh, all of these contributions from people, from, from Palestinians, um, with this upsurge of international solidarity around the world, with this kind of um,
think we lost uh, we lost Mark. I will I will just use this interruption to say thank you for for Ailel uh, Tantura. Uh, thank you very much. This is so important to hear. It's so rewarding, so empowering. I, I I do, I do apologize. I, I've dropped out of there. I don't know how much um, you had. This is Ilan. I'll just come briefly back. I suppose the question is um, your nearer neighbors, Egypt, Gulf states, those countries that have been quite willing to sign peace agreements, even if there's been no history of conflict uh, with Israel. What, why? A lot of people will be asking, you know, why and how? Can there be greater Arab solidarity once again with Palestine, with Palestinians? Yes, thank you, uh, Marco, uh, for, for the question. Uh, this is an old problem, by the way. This is not a new problem. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there was always a gap between uh, rulers, regimes, governments, and uh, public opinion or civil society uh, in the Arab world, whether it's in the Mashraq, the Eastern Arab world, or in North Africa, or in the Gulf area. The, the, the people who live in those Arab countries uh, were always uh, 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 supporting the Palestinian struggle, always showed the solidarity with the Palestinian people. And this hasn't changed. I mean, uh, the realization from the very beginning was there uh, that the decolonization of Palestine is the last chapter of the struggle against colonialism and imperialism uh, of the Arab world that affected the Arab world, that destroyed the Arab world, that sowed uh, factionalism and sectarianism in the, in the Arab world. So, so I think there was always a realization among uh, intellectuals, trade unionists, activists, and, and uh, you know, members of the public uh, in those Arab countries from the very beginning that there was an awareness that, the, that there is a Zionist project of the de-Arabization of Palestine, that uh, uh, solidarity with the Palestinians is solidarity with the overall Arab struggle for independence and, and, and liberation, and later on for uh, achieving uh, welfare, uh, social justice, economic justice, and uh, protecting human rights and civil rights. Now, the story of Arab regimes and rulers is a bit different. Uh, uh, quite a few of them uh, uh, along their history and even today were not democratically elected. Some of them took power by force. Uh, not, uh, some of them uh, do not have the legitimacy as rulers that they would like uh, uh, to have. They depend uh, on the United States. They see Israel as a strategic ally that can help them maintain their own uh, uh, regimes. Uh, but uh, history plays a very uh, cruel trick with them. The more they decide that uh, uh, the alliance with Israel, whether a formal one or an informal one, is a factor that would enhance their legitimacy, that would strengthen their uh, regime, the more they find that it actually weakens their uh, uh, legitimacy. And, and, and once they are, uh, 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 once they, they decide to enter official relationship with Israel, their legitimacy is even more questioned. And, and, and all these undercurrents that threaten their uh, regime and, this, and, and their uh, validity are enhanced by that kind of policy, by that kind of uh, alliance with the last uh, settler colonial project uh, in the Arab world. So, so I think that in the short run, it looks as if the Palestinian people are losing here because some of their potential allies since the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt and until today are now moving to the side of the Israelis. But this is only on the face of it. Uh, in reality, in fact, these kinds of open betrayal of the, of the solidarity with the Palestinian people, betrayal of their genuine democratic wishes of their own people, in fact, strengthen the alliances in the Arab world and solidarity with the Palestinians. And uh, I think that in, in, in the long run, these kinds of uh, uh, sentiments and impulses and, and, uh, uh, and solidarity will not only 
help the Palestinians in their struggle for liberation, it will prove to be a transformative force that would change the Arab world and the Arab world needs to be changed. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it has a dismal record now of human rights and civil rights. It has issues of uh, social and economic justice. But I think Palestine was and still is one of the major arena where these kinds of transformative forces can turn into a revolutionary uh, uh, movement that would show us that the Arab Spring was just the beginning of a process and not the end of it. Can these transformative processes um, in Palestine also include, and, and do you consider this in the book, or do your authors consider this, uh, a, a democratic revolution as well? Because uh, a, a, you certainly hear from younger people, um, Ilan, that there's, you know, the, the leadership, especially in the West Bank, is ossified. It seems to be uh, like to avoid elections if it can, uh, doesn't like to be analyzed or held to account. Has this not also got to begin from home, if you like? And, and also, that, and subsequently, and this is a question for you, Ramsey, in terms of that process moving forward, um, do, you, do, will you, do you take any sucker or any hope or any uh, ideas from previous processes that have led on to better, greater things? And I'm thinking about the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, and also that the process that took place in um, Northern Ireland. But if I can go for you to the first to you, Ilan, and then to Ramsey. Yes. Well, Mark, I don't want to disappoint you, but I think democracy is a bit overrated, especially Western democracy. I just finished reading uh, Nadine Elenani's book, Bordering Britain, uh, talking about uh, what British democracy is really all about when you are a non-white person uh, in the United Kingdom, when you are a former subject of the British Empire. Uh, I don't think this is the model I would like uh, uh, to adopt. So I, I think that uh, we should talk about decolonization, human rights, and civil rights. I think that's the focus. Uh, and I think there are uh, uh, chapters in the history of uh, the Arab world, especially the Mashrak, the Eastern uh, Arab world, uh, beautifully described by a new book by uh, Usama Magdisi, The Ecumenical Frame, that, that, that show that there is something in the past that can be taken for the future of live and let live of people with different communal uh, identities uh, and yet keeping an eye on human rights and civil rights and gender rights uh, and so on. So, so I think that uh, uh, the issue here is not democratization of the, of the Palestinian national movement. It's a question of representation, definitely. I think the young generation is not fully represented in the leadership and in the leading forces moving the Palestinian uh, uh, revolution uh, into the future. But I think they are going to do it. I don't think anybody would be able uh, to stop them. And uh, knowing a lot of them and reading much of what they are writing and talking about, I would be uh, honored to live in the political space that they want to create. Uh, I, I don't need to call it a, a model of liberal democracy, democracy, a Western democracy. They will build something that connects the past with the present and the future. Uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean has a lot to tell us about how people know, lived one next to, that, to another as Jews, Muslims, and Christians before Zionism arrived. And it tells us something about how young people today have this global universal culture at their basis. And all these uh, impulses and instincts will come fused together into a society that I'm sure would be just and would uh, protect human rights uh, and civil rights. So I'm, I'm really not worried about, about this, this issue. My, my main worry is that the Israeli clock of destruction, or rather, sorry, that the Israeli pace of destruction is much quicker right now than our pace of building the resistance and the liberation. The gap between these two paces worries me, really worries me. Uh, but once we, and, but we are slowly narrowing the gap. And once we will, uh, uh, the gap would be, would disappear, 
there would be all the energies and all the conducive circumstances to build a society and a state which is much better than what people had. There is no reason for people to build uh, a similar, uh, you know, political uh, uh, outfit uh, that uh, reminds them of the oppressive uh, structures that they suffered from so many years. Ramsey, over to you. Oh, you're on mute. Uh, very quickly, just to, uh, to follow up uh, on uh, Ilan's uh, take on the issue of democracy. I mean, we know that there are several interpretation of democracies and the way that they have been applied in such a misleading and quite often destructive uh, way throughout the Middle East region. We, we know of George W. Bush's democracy in Iraq and where that took that country. Uh, we know that democracy is a tool that is being used by these neo-colonial powers whenever they want to impose their political and, and colonial agenda on any region. And it's abhorred and uh, um, disowned entirely the moment that democracy could actually give potential to the rise of a people who would eventually challenge these colonial powers. Um, am I terribly concerned about pal Palestinian democracy prior to, to liberation. I, I don't know of really many scenarios of liberation movements around the world from Algeria to South Africa to Vietnam, where democracy was something that was actually confronted and dealt with prior to the victory after um, uh, the colonial powers and the process of decolonization. It is something that comes after. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should not worry about the issue of fair representation. Uh, and this is an internal process that matters to the Palestinian people. For example, we want to see a Palestinian political body like the PLO that indeed engages and represents all Palestinians in Palestine, in the Middle East and everywhere else in the world. This is something that matters to Palestinians and matters greatly. And indeed, to answer your question, we are confronting this issue through um, several essays, one by Dr. Ibrahim al who is going to be talking about the language of liberation and how it relates to revolution in the Arab world, and the others by Hanin Zabi, the former um, Palestinian Knesset member, uh, who is talking about the issue of democracy and representation to create a more representative and fairer Palestinian uh, body politic. But of course, this is not the democracy that is being imposed on the Palestinians in exchange for a handful of, of dollars uh, in Ramallah or elsewhere. That's an entirely different process in demo of democracy. And of course, this is something else, another term that we are reclaiming and rebranding re and redefining to mean something for the Palestinian people in their path of liberation, not something to satisfy the political demands and pressures of the donor countries or Washington or Tel Aviv. Well, look, thank you both very, very much, um, Ramsey and Ilan. Unfortunately, we've, we've reached uh, kind of the end of our time, which is a real shame because we're only really beginning to, to, to poke about at the surface in, in many ways. But I hope that everybody who's been watching and contributing today can take something away from uh, the discussion. And of course, um, please, please buy uh, Ilan and Pape's book when it's published in November, uh, Our Vision for Liberation. It uh, is clearly a, going to be an extremely powerful manifesto for change, uh, but in so many different ways. From what we've been hearing from Ilan and Pape, uh, this is not just a, a, another, another roadmap for getting to, from A to B. This is a much bigger uh, vision for a future Palestine and a very, very positive one from what we've been hearing. So it really has been fantastic to have you both. Um, thank you so much for your time. Perhaps we can do this again uh, around about November time. Um, I think that would be a good idea because uh, uh, there'll be a much bigger focus also on the launch of your book and we can talk in greater detail. We've had, we've had people sending in questions from all over the world, from North America, from all over Europe, from the Middle East, from uh, Southeast Asia um, and from Africa. So uh, thank you to everybody who's uh, taken part and today. 
Uh, join us uh, next time on Palestine Deep Dive. Subscribe if you haven't. Uh, we have a daily news service. It's, it's very, very good. Believe me, Ramsey and Ilan read it every day, so it must be. So thank you very, very much, um, Ramsey, Ilan. Thank you to all of you. Um, and until next time, it's goodbye from all of us. Thank you, Mark. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.